Georgia is held to a different standard. We acknowledge that. By the way, they probably should be. They're two-time national champion. We are going to compare this Georgia team to the Georgia teams we saw in 22 and 21. Is that fair? Uh, probably not. They are. When you're the two-time defending national champs, we expect you to look better than anybody, and it's been a work in progress for Georgia, but a really good win for them this weekend against the Missouri Tigers. Welcome to Always College Football. We appreciate you being here. I'm your host, Greg McElroy. We have a lot of my teammates alongside. Jack Shrail's here. Jack Foster's here. Jake Garcia's here. And unfortunately, Mark Kubiak is here as well. We appreciate all of you being with us. If you could, just for a moment, just like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. It mean a lot to us. If you could, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That'd be awesome as well. We read those and we appreciate all of you that have sent us some nice messages these last couple of weeks. We promise to continue giving you the best content possible here on a week-to-week basis as we lead you up to the finale of the college football season. We have a great show in store for you today like we do every Monday. We'll do our 10 takeaways. It's tough to narrow it down to 10 this week. There are so many takeaways after the week 10 edition of uh, of a college football Saturday. We also are going to tell you what my top six look like. And this top six is not based on resume. It's who I think's best right now in college football. I'll list them one through six at the moment. So let's not waste any time. Let's start with the top six. And I'll tell it to you now here on Always College Football. Starting with the top six, we've done this every week. And this is not subjected to resume or how teams have have fared and who they've beaten. Everyone's resume at this point is incomplete. So this is just the order that that I think the teams should go as far as how good they are, how good and how capable they are. The team that I think right now, if everyone played everyone on the neutral side, the team that I have number one is the team that I think is going to win the national championship. And that's the Michigan Wolverines. They are number one. For me this week at number two, I have the Georgia Bulldogs. I think that's the team that Michigan will most likely have to beat in the national championship game. At number three, I'm taking Florida State, moving them up a spot from where they were a week ago. And Florida State, while it was not pretty, and we'll discuss it here again in a moment, that's been a place where great teams have struggled in the past. And Florida State, certainly not their best but also not close to 100% as well. We'll document the injuries in a moment, but Florida State's playing good football on both sides, and they're overcoming some adversities that have become very real. So I've slid them up to number three. At number four, I put the Washington Huskies. For a couple weeks there, I was very concerned about how Washington was playing, but man, they're starting to figure it out a little bit. And against the biggest test that they've had since Oregon, when they needed to be great, they were. And they have now found another gear with how they ran the football to make me think this balanced attack offensively, if it can continue, they'll be even more difficult to defend in the weeks to come. I know some of that has to do with USC's defense, but we can talk about that more in just a moment. At number five, I have Ohio State. Number one in the college football playoff committee rankings, and rightfully so. Like I've documented, they have the best resume to date, or at least did last week. Prior to a couple other wins that other teams got this past week, that conversation might be a little bit more up in the air. But Ohio State is just seemingly missing something offensively. I can't quite put my finger on it, but it's inconsistent offensive line play, inconsistent protection, 
inconsistent with the hands. A bunch of drops that we've seen at times from the Buckeyes this year. And while the defense remains excellent, it's hard for me right now to look at the rest of the teams that are in front of them, one through four. I don't feel great about the matchup with Ohio State against some of those teams that might have a little more firepower offensively. And then at number six, I still have the Oregon Ducks. And what was a bit of a wacky game against Cal, the offense is just ridiculous. I mean, they can turn it into overdrive immediately. And that's what makes them, I think, the most dangerous one-loss team in the country. Now to our 10 takeaways that we do every Monday. And there's a bunch of good ones this week. I actually had to whittle the list down a little bit because initially I had about 14 takeaways. <laughs> so we had to pick and choose our spots. But it was very easy for us to do 14, 15, 16 takeaways this week, especially after the weekend that was. I'll give you a bonus and a freebie right at the beginning. That's what college football Saturdays are supposed to look like. We'll just start there. Great games in the noon window. Great and dramatic games in the 3.30 window. Incredible nighttime action. Teams that are going bowling for the first time in a while, a la Arizona there in the late night. Man, we loved every second of it. If you're a college football diehard like me, I called a game in the noon window. I was in my car listening to Sirius XM. They bounce around. Learfield does a great job. We hear all those different games and all those different teams and all the radio calls from those teams. So I was listening to those guys. They're bouncing around like seven different games. I was almost having a tough time keeping up with it. So I just, first of all, tip of the cap to Sirius XM Channel 84 and how they handle game days. It's like NFL red zone for college football. So tip of the cap to them. Loved it. And I felt like I was able to consume so much football, but I walked in the door at 645 Central Time and I was buckled up for the nighttime action for about six hours. So that's what college football Saturdays are supposed to look like. So it's a little bonus freebie right off the top, but let's get to the 10 that we decided on. Number one, Alabama finally gives us the performance that we've been waiting for. Let's start with Jalen Milrow, because I think it's an appropriate place to start. He led the Alabama offense to scores on all but two possessions. Uh, those two possessions were missed field goals by Will Reichard, who doesn't miss very often. So a lot of Bama fans today may be a little concerned about the kicking situation, but that's not something I'm going to lose a lot of sleep over. But Jalen Milrow, in some of the bigger games leading up to Saturday's performance against LSU, he had maybe forced the ball. He didn't always look super comfortable. He'd have some erratic misses. He'd be a little off the mark. And he was not very decisive when it came to taking off and using his legs, which by all accounts, is one of the best attributes he's ha he has. He was awesome on Saturday. You look at, at pretty much everything he did. The one thing that he'd done up to this point of the season, he's done a great job on the deep ball. And that's been a big part of why the offense has done some nice things. That wasn't part of the plan on Saturday. He didn't throw the deep ball great. But what he did do is on the short throws, the intermediate throws, taking off on timely third down opportunities. He was terrific. He had seven carries of 10 plus yards. And it was a bunch of different ways. You get some zone reads where he gets the first touchdown. His second touchdown was on that scramble, kind of surveying and seeing there's not a whole lot there. I'm going to take off. And the fourth touchdown, which gave Bama the seven-point lead, 35-28, it was on an RPO where he waited for a moment, waited for a moment, and then boom, took off, got vertical, 
and found the end zone. So I thought that was the best performance from Jalen Milrow to date. And if he can carry over some of that confidence into the following weeks, this offense is only going to continue to get better and better and better. The run game in general, thanks in large part to how Jalen Milrow ran the ball, the run game was as good as it's been all season long. They had come in to the game against LSU ranked 77th in rushing offense. They averaged just 147 yards per game. That's the fewest per game in the Nick Saban era prior to Saturday. And they were going up against an LSU defense that was 13th in the SEC in rush defense. So they acknowledged where LSU might have struggled, and they said, you know what, we're going to make sure that this is the part of our offense that comes to the forefront. We're going to put their weakness, their liability, we're going to put it right out there in the open for everybody to see. Alabama went on to rush for nearly 300 yards and about seven yards to carry and completely took over the game in the second half by controlling the line of scrimmage. And with timely scrambles, it only added to what was an impressive output. That run game efficiency led to really manageable third downs. If you look at where Alabama was, they had five different third downs that they were facing in which it was third and four or less. They were five for five on those manageable third down situations. And at one point in the game, they were nine of 11 on third down. Staying on the field was huge. And that's why ultimately, as the game went along, Bama started to wear down the Tigers on that side of the ball. The other caveat, and we don't do moral victories here, but Jaden Daniels is awesome, isn't he? I absolutely hated that he got hurt in the game. But I'm glad the entire college football world, even though it wasn't for a four-quarter performance, I'm glad that the entire college football world got to soak up just how great he's been this season. He's one of the elite players in the sport. And the stat line would read 15-25 to 25 for 220, a couple of touchdown passes, but the 163 yards on the ground, it's like he's faster than everyone on the field. You can't even catch him. Now, you really can't catch him. It looks like he's just gliding. He just glides, and yet nobody can catch up to him. He's just remarkable. So I hated that he got hurt in the game. A lot of the conversation is centered around the hit that knocked him out. Should it have been targeting? Should it have been? Was it cheap? Was it dirty? I played the position. I understand that quarterbacks are given a veil of protection, a veil of protection, and understandably so. It's an important position. I've seen roughing the passer calls this year. Remember one in particular against Miami a couple weeks back when North Carolina was on defense and the North Carolina defender was just trying to swat the ball and he glanced Tyler Van Dyke's helmet and it led to a 15-yard roughing the passer penalty. So I don't like how far we've gone in the direction of, hey, you know, the quarterbacks protect. We got to take care of the quarterback. No, we've gone way too far. That was a big hit. That was a violent collision. I personally did not think it was dirty. It's my own personal thought. Having played the position and having taken hits like that, plenty of them, I might add, in an era when we didn't have targeting, I didn't think that was a hit that had malicious intent. Was it violent? Absolutely. And violence happens throughout the course of the game at several different spots. It's just often when we see it against quarterbacks, we have a stronger reaction. I didn't think it was illegal. I didn't think it was wrong. It was obviously roughing the passer and should have been, but a targeting, I understand why they didn't call it by 
the screenshots that people have sent, you just have to watch the play in live action. It didn't look like he had an upward thrust, didn't look like he launched. That would be the quote indicator, and it didn't look like he initiated the contact with the crown of the helmet. A lot of people will disagree, and that's perfectly fine, which gets me to my next point. Maybe we should clarify the targeting rule just a little bit more because there's a little bit too much gray area in it as of right now. But either way, it was a good win for Alabama. I thought Jaden Daniels and company offensively looked beautiful, beautiful in the first two, two and a half quarters of the game. And then down the stretch, Bama's defense had a couple big stops that ultimately gave them the win. Takeaway number two. Is Georgia human? It's a real question. Now, this was by far Georgia's best win of the season. And I have a ton of respect for Missouri. And I've said this on the playoff show last Tuesday. I said, Missouri's real. The college football world might not know it just yet, but Missouri is very real. And while they were number 12 in the country coming into Athens, they played like a team that I think impressed everybody after how they handled it. And this was by far the most stressful game that we've seen in Athens in several years. There was eight minutes left. There was a six-point lead. Missouri was driving to midfield. And it looked like Missouri might have the momentum on their side. And then there was one play that just completely threw the game and flipped it on its head. And that was the play where Brady Cook kind of stepped back and threw the ball, was rushed. And then Nazir Stackhouse, the defensive tackle for Georgia, picked it up and rumbled downfield. Anytime you see a guy carrying the football that's wearing number 78, that's something I'm pretty excited about. <laughs> it was pretty remarkable. I know the big return didn't count because they had the blindside block, but that backed Georgia up a little bit. It was still a massive play. The game's first turnover, and it was the first time that Georgia really had an opportunity with great field position to potentially put the game on ice. Now, Peyton Woodring, after they stalled, he comes in, drains a career-long 48-yarder to make it a two-possession game. And that's when the stress that was felt in the stadium was lifted. But here's where I ask the question. Georgia is held to a different standard. We acknowledge that. By the way, they probably should be. They're two-time national champion. We are going to compare this Georgia team to the Georgia teams we saw in 22 and 21. Is that fair? Eh, probably not. Because last time I checked, the 22 Georgia team and the 21 Georgia team are not in contention for the college football playoff. Georgia has to beat this collection of teams. They don't have to beat 22's version and 21's version of the Georgia Bulldogs to get to the mountaintop of college football. But there is a little bit of a concern that I acknowledged when watching Georgia defensively and offensively at the line of scrimmage. That's the one thing that I paid really close attention to. And let's start with Georgia's defense. It was almost a foregone conclusion forever that you're not running the ball on Georgia. It's just not going to happen, so don't even try. You better hope your quarterback's hot and you better hope your weapons on the perimeter are great because you have no chance of running the football. Well, that wasn't the case when Missouri came to town. They were able to punch some holes in that front. You get Cody Schrader, who is, I think, a real solid back. Get him in some stretch zone situations. Get him out to the edges just a little bit. Take into account a couple scrambles from Cook. This was pretty shocking to see Cody Schrader finish with more than 100 yards. It's one of the best performances we've seen by a running back against Georgia in the last handful of years. Then you look at the red zone. 
Uh, red zone this year, the Bulldogs rank last in the SEC in that category. Opponents get touchdowns on 13 out of their 17 possessions in the red zone. Now, that's not a lot of possessions in the red zone, but that was a big key in this game. Georgia has struggled in the red zone, giving up touchdowns. Well, they didn't in this one, and that was ultimately the difference. Missouri, two field goals in their first two drives into the red zone, and that was obviously those things result in touchdowns. It's a very different-looking game. The third time, they were able to punch it in, and then they got the two-point conversion to make it a little more interesting and make it 24-21 there in the back half. So the red zone defense, while improved, it's not maybe quite to where it needs to be as they move a little bit forward and the competition strengthens. And then finally, the protection. Now, Carson Beck felt like, especially in the first half, there was a lot more pressure than he's used to seeing. There were a couple sacks, had some rush throws, some big misses. Now, it got better as the game went along. And Beck played better as the game went along because the protection held up. But that was the first time in a while I've seen a quarterback for Georgia feeling a lot of heat. So the line of scrimmage is something that I'll be watching closely with Georgia as they move forward. Ole Miss, will they present a, a, a difficult offensive plan for Georgia to stop in the run game? Probably. They're, they're pretty good running the football, Ole Miss is, and they have pretty good weapons on the perimeter as well. Can Tennessee, we know Tennessee has been excellent rushing the passer, creating negative plays, getting you off schedule offensively. These are two teams the next two weeks that are really solid along the line of scrimmage. So we'll be watching that closely because the expectation level for Georgia is to be the best in the business along the line of scrimmage. And so far through the first 10 weeks of the season, it's been a little bit up and down, which is a little bit shocking. All right, let me ask you, you just mentioned the, the next two games, then they have Georgia Tech at Georgia Tech, and then... Alabama in the SEC championship game, probably. Is there a lot of pressure that would get to Georgia in this? Like that seems like a really daunting gauntlet to try to win all of those. Yeah, well, you can drop one and still be in pretty good shape. That's the one caveat that that I feel pretty confident in. Um, for instance, you lose to Ole Miss. Are, are your playoff hopes dashed? Probably not. You don't want to lose at home. Uh, if you lose to Tennessee, that obviously makes things a little bit more challenging. But either way, I, I look at what George is doing right now. And and George is – they're going to win the SEC East. I, I feel very confident in that. I mean, are they likely to lose the next two? I, I don't think so at all. But the, when I when watching Michigan, for example, and George's – if they keep on the path that they're going, Michigan's a real possible opponent at some point. When I watch Michigan, when I watch some of the other defenses that I've seen and I see the pressure that's being applied, I, I need to know that George can handle that pressure. And I'm talking pressure on the field, not external pressure of trying to win a third straight championship. Right now, they've gotten gashed against Auburn on the ground. They got gashed a little bit by Missouri on the ground. We know Tennessee can run the football. We know Ole Miss can run the football. So we're going to find out a lot about Georgia, and there are some improvements that need to be made. Not saying they can't win the whole thing. Absolutely, they can. But there are improvements that need to be made between now and the SEC championship game, really now and next week against Ole Miss. And then if they get through the next four games at three and one or better, and there's going to need to be some improvements made before they tee it up in the college football playoff. Because there are some teams that are some slobber knockers and right now, Georgia's not playing to the level in which they're capable of just yet. Takeaway number three, Ohio State still needs to find 
an explosive offense if they want to reach their goals. Now, you look at where Ohio State was. They, they bounced back in the second half and played well down the stretch. And this is not that dissimilar to where Ohio State's kind of been. They have, in their seven games against Power 5 teams, Ohio State scored 127 second-half points. They've scored just 70 in the first half. So it's been a team all season long that's been a little bit up and down, but a faster start is going to be needed here as they move forward. It's tail of two halves in this one against Rutgers. First half was a completely mixed bag. You had the impressive six-play, 54-yard scoring drive, and then the next four drives ended with a punt, a punt, a fake punt, and a pick. Then you fast forward to the second half. They scored on three of their four possessions and pulled away, and you should feel pretty good about it. They averaged eight yards a play in the second half. They converted six of seven third downs, and like I said, scored three touchdowns and four offensive drives. And the pick six by Jordan Hancock is what gave them uh, gave them the lead after they trailed there at halftime. So this is kind of who they've been so far this year. So it's not crazy surprising, but there needs to be a little bit better start because a team that's in a hole against a really capable offense might be a lot tougher to climb out of that hole as we move our sights towards the game against Michigan and against teams that you might see if you're victorious against Michigan, against teams you might see in the college football playoff. Red zone. Now, the red zone defense for Ohio State has been something that I've been real encouraged by. Now, Rutgers got inside the five-yard line three separate times, and each one of those three times, they settled for a field goal. That was huge, right? That was absolutely huge. You're talking about game-changing moments for Rutgers, potentially, to punch it in, to really apply some pressure, and they were able to figure it out. So that was a real point of positivity when evaluating their game overall. Red zone or uh, run defense struggles is something that I'm also a little bit kind of wound up about. And we know that that this is an Ohio State team that has really been good all year long against the run. But to see them give up the run game that they gave up against Rutgers is a little bit concerning. I'm talking about a group that gave up nearly 200 yards against Rutgers. And Scarlet Knights ran for over five yards a carry. So that's something to definitely be a little bit more mindful of. And then the last takeaway from Ohio State is how important Travion Henderson is to this offense. No one is going to dispute that the best player on Ohio State is Marvin Harrison. I certainly won't dispute that. He is amazing. But getting Travion Henderson back the last couple of weeks has been a complete game changer. He was out for three games and his absence was noticeable. But now that you have extra juice and extra speed there at running back, you got a guy that could break it open at any one given time. And in the past two games, he has 415 yards from scrimmage and two touchdowns. So him being healthy is of the utmost importance down the stretch because his speed makes life very difficult for the opposing defense. Have you ever dreamed of hitting the road in your very own customized Mercedes-Benz Sprinter? Follow college football all season long. 
by hitting all the biggest games in college football's most celebrated stadiums. At ESPN, we dreamed that dream, and with the help of Mercedes-Benz, we made it happen. This year, our very own Jen Latta has teamed up with Mercedes-Benz designers to create a road-ready, fully functional, state-of-the-art podcast studio on wheels. The ride is pure Mercedes-Benz with all-wheel drive and the latest driver assistance, safety, and tech. The podcast studio must be seen and heard to be believed. A spacious and chill conversation space with mics, camera, and mixing board to capture the action. On board, Jen Latta will be interviewing some of the biggest names in college football. All points to Mercedes-Benz for always bringing some extra. Out back of the Sprinter, they're innovating. Pushing the science of the tailgate, complete with grill, cooler, TV monitors, and more. This is hashtag van life meets the fan life. To get an inside look to this one-of-a-kind, blow-your-mind collaboration came together, visit mbvans.com slash Sprinter Labs. The Mercedes-Benz ESPN College Football Podcast Sprinter coming soon to a game near you. Hey, college football fans, whether you're on the field or in the stands, make sure you're well protected, like having a solid defense to shut down that wide receiver in the final quarter, opening lanes for your running backs to do their thing, and of course, reliability when protecting your quarterback, because great coverage is a game changer. That's why Allstate provides that same protection off the field giving you reliable coverage and game-winning protection for everything that matters, helping you stay game day ready every day. So get protected with Allstate. Visit Allstate.com or call a local agent today to learn more. Brought to you by Allstate. You're in good hands. Insurance coverage is subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates Northbrook, Illinois. Takeaway number four. Can we please get Bedlam back on the schedule? <laughs> this this game was exactly what we expected. It, it was not even the slightest bit surprising. It was dramatic. It was controversial. There were amazing plays and there were horrendous plays, all of which led to Oklahoma State storming the field at Boone Pickens Stadium. And what was a classic? Right, big plays, uh, running backs throwing picks, uh, quarterbacks punting, <laughs> you know, um, fumbles. I mean, it, this game had a little bit of everything. Okay. Uh, it was beautifully imperfect and I kind of loved every second of it. Oklahoma had three turnovers, which resulted in 10 points for Oklahoma state. They also had the decisive field goal to, to stretch their lead to 27 20. Uh, the 27-21 midway through the fourth quarter, and then four straight Oklahoma State possessions that ended terribly, including three consecutive failures on fourth down and Ollie Gordon's interception on a trick play inside the Sooners' 10. So <laughs> it was... I loved every second of it. It was just absolutely chaotic and for all the many reasons. But let's talk first about some of the real positives in this game before we get to a couple of the negatives. Ollie Gordon was not at 100% down the stretch, right? Wasn't it 
about, you know, towards the end of the first half or whatever, he, he looked, didn't look like much, but then he kind of got banged up, kind of laid on the turf and, and was, was holding his side and they came and, and checked on him and, and everything was okay. Well, he went on to have just a grinded out performance in the second half. And, and I don't like to, to give Heisman trophies in early November or necessarily point to the stats that you accumulated against average competition. I'm, I'm not, he got to be able to do that in the Big 12 title game. If you get there against Texas, you got to go for 200 in a game like that with three touchdowns and decisive and emphatic victory for that to be considered a Heisman moment. But I just wanted to tip my cap to the toughness that Ollie Gordon displayed. I don't think he was anywhere near 100%, and yet he still continued to churn it out. And And he's Oklahoma State's best player, so he was clearly very important to their success on the final day against Oklahoma. I also want to give some credit to the passing game. And we didn't talk much going into the game about the wide receivers for Oklahoma State. We actually talked very little. I might have mentioned Rashad Owens for five seconds. But there were a bunch of really important moments when the receivers needed to make a play, and they really stepped up. Rashad Owens had a career-high 10 catches and 136 receiving yards. Brennan Presley also made his fair share of plays as well, eight catches for 97. Two guys that are very familiar with this rivalry, seniors that are important to the success of this Oklahoma State football team that have taken the back seat to an offense that has really gone in the direction of being one-dimensional running the football, they reminded everybody that, hey, we can still do it on the outside too, and they left their mark uh, on the game in a, in a really significant way. A lot of the conversation after this one has been about officiating, and I get it. I, I don't like to talk about officiating. I don't like to think about officiating because we can point to examples in every single game in which a call is missed or a call is made that might have a slight impact on the result. But all that being said, this was the second game in a row. Oklahoma was called for back-to-back penalties. They gave 30 yards on the critical fourth quarter scoring drive. And it was extremely, extremely penal for Venables to get the 15-yarder and all the other stuff. But the most egregious in the game was when Oklahoma was trailing Oklahoma State, about five minutes to play, and Dylan Gabriel threw it to the corner against Drake Stoops on third and 12 from the 18-yard line. And there was a lot of contact, a lot of contact between Drake Stoops and Dylan Smith, the Oklahoma State corner. The pass was incomplete, and they decided not to throw a flag. It was a penalty. I don't know. I don't believe in conspiracy theories. I don't believe in the Big 12 officials getting directed by the Big 12 conference office to make sure that Oklahoma lost the game. I don't believe in that at all. But that was a critical moment in which the play was missed by the official. You have to acknowledge that. Did it ultimately change the outcome of the game? Perhaps. Uh, More than likely it did. And it should have been called. And I feel bad for Oklahoma that they didn't have that play called. But then again, they did also give Oklahoma State 30 yards of field position just on the play before. So, or just on the drive before or whatnot. So, 
I hate that so much of the conversation will center around the no call, but it was missed and it was botched. And hopefully there will be a statement from the league office that that was a bad decision. Even when the rules official, who always seems to have the officials back and tries to find the silver lining of positivity because it's a hard job. When Matt Austin's on the show and saying, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's, that's DPI, that's defense pass interference. And it's not called. It's wrong. Uh, and then finally, a lot of people are kind of hung up about the last play on fourth and five, their own 46-yard line. They run the play down to Drake Stoops. that was two yards short of the first down marker. In that situation, you always have to understand the line to gain. That route needs to be at least a yard, maybe two yards deeper. But they weren't deep enough. Oklahoma State makes the tackle. And next thing you know, it's over. So... There were missed opportunities there from Oklahoma. That's a self-inflicted, not getting the not getting the proper yardage on the route that led to you being tackled short of the sticks. So anyways, the original question was, it's a great win for Oklahoma State. I feel bad for Oklahoma. They left some plays on the field. But how do we get this game back on the schedule? Now, neither school is going to sit here and say, well, you know, we don't want to play two non-conference games against Power 5 opponents especially knowing that Oklahoma State is playing a nine-game conference schedule in the future of the Big 12. Oklahoma's moving to the SEC currently, currently, right now, they're playing an eight-game conference schedule, but I would imagine that will go to nine at some point. So you look at the openings on both teams' future schedules, looks like the first time this game could potentially be played again is in 2031, but we need to get it on the schedule sooner than that. College football deserves this rivalry, and... I know that there's full schedules and people will say, well, they're full through 2037. I don't care. Get it on the schedule. Let's make it happen because it's just too important to the sport not to have it played annually. Can we talk? And I don't think he's ever going to get the recognition for it, but Mike Gundy, possible coach of the year. I mean, seven wins, tied last year, had 18 players transfer out, won the last bedlam, and the rest of his schedule sets up to have him in Oklahoma State in the Big 12 championship game. Like, not, not, not getting enough love. Well, he's getting lots of love. And I think most importantly is after a two and two start, week five, you have a week off to take some time to kind of evaluate. All right, here's what we got. Here's how we attack. I think the adjustment in season to alter your identity. Stop going with three quarterbacks. Say, nope, Bowman's our guy. Stop going with the running back by committee. Say, nope, Ollie Gordon's our guy. Here's how we're going to beat teams moving forward. And they have changed drastically. And it's now led to a first place, current first place standing in the Big 12. So yeah, he should be on the short list with the turnaround that's occurred here since the beginning of October with how they've really changed who they are for the better. Takeaway number five, we'll keep it in the Big 12 for the moment. Texas needs to learn how to finish and they need to get Quinn Ewers back. Now, Texas has escaped a bunch of games this year with less than their best. Okay, week three was a bad performance against Wyoming. You have a really close call against Houston. Now you have a really close call against Kansas State. Every single time it feels like Texas is in really good shape, they seem to not be able to close the door. And last week, Sark has kind of talked about it. We need a, quote, killer instinct. And I got to be honest with you. I completely agree. Because you have a three-touchdown lead against multiple teams and you can't close the door. You're up 21-zip against Houston. And they climb back to tie it 24 in the fourth quarter. 
They end up squeaking by with the 31-24 victory. Kansas State had three empty possessions to start the second half, and at that point, Texas had grown its lead to 27-7. to Could have been bigger if Texas didn't clean up a couple of miscues both offensively and, and on special teams. So they, they got to find a way to finish and not kind of exhale when they get that big lead because these games, especially against Houston and Kansas State, they shouldn't be as competitive as they are and their own self-inflicted mistakes have allowed teams to crawl back into it. And then all the pressure gets reverted onto the Texas Longhorns. Either way, this was a good win. Kansas State's excellent. And anytime you can get a win like that, when you don't have your starting quarterback and you're without some other guys, we'll get to in a moment, you take it and run. Let's talk quickly about Malik Murphy for a moment. He had the miss to Xavier Worthy on the first series, but he did bounce back nicely and hit A.D. Mitchell for the 37-yard touchdown. He hit Mitchell for the 47-yard gain on the third series. Two plays after that, uh, he he was patient and, and worked his way kind of through the progressions and hits Whittington over the middle. So there was a lot to like about his ability to kind of handle what was not an ideal start. He also threw the pick. And then after the pick, there were some more errant throws. Uh, you wonder, was he a little rattled? Was he seeing some ghosts? All those things are real questions. But those mistakes against real, real top-level competition, which is where Texas wants to go, you're not going to be able to overcome those things. Now, Malik Murphy's making his second start in a massive game, and you can see the potential when he's out there on the field. But it did appear for a moment there, like, man, you know, he just wasn't really playing real well after some mistakes. So hopefully he can learn from that performance and get going better in the future. But it's going to be important for Quinn Ewers to get back and get back healthy. Sounds like things are moving in the right direction in his recovery. That's according to Steve Sarkeesian. So maybe he'll be back sooner than we think. But he's not the only guy that's missing some time right now for the Longhorns. You're without Christian Jones, the right tackle. You're without your safety, Keaton Crawford. Left tackle, Kelvin Banks, got banged up in the game. You've been without Jalen Catalan. Got hurt against Oklahoma, returned to practice, but he hasn't played in the last few weeks. So this Texas team, the injuries are starting to pile up a little bit. So they need to get healthy and they need to learn how to finish because it could get dicey down the stretch when some of the teams are, you know, given their best shot at the Longhorns here to try to end what is a great playoff run up to this point. Takeaway number six, Washington and USC was a generational quarterback matchup. Now, we've seen it from Caleb Williams for years. I don't think I need to to sit here and, and explain just how good Caleb Williams is. I mean, he was running around from pressure all night long. Still finished with over 300 yards. Still finished with three touchdowns. Still finished at almost an 80% completion clip. I mean, he's running around and ad-libbing, and, and he, you can't even contain him. I mean, it's like you don't even know... I mean, the guys aren't open initially. Him buying time and escaping, and that allows them to uncover. And, and I mean, he, he always seems to step up. And I, I know that he will finish his college career without a national championship. I, I understand that, and that's disappointing. He will have a Heisman Trophy to show for it, though. And I think he reminded everybody on Saturday that he can't do it all himself, and he certainly doesn't. He's got good supporting cast. But my goodness, when... When the, when the Trojans need him to make a play, he almost always does. He is just incredible. Just incredible and will go down as one of the all-time greats at the position. I mean, at least in the recent era. And 
man, I just I felt for him after the game too because he's put his heart into it. I mean, he has really put his heart into it. And while a lot of people have have not liked how some of the things have been handled with you know his draft prospects and saying he won't necessarily go to the league, like all whatever, that guy can ball. And it was really really special for us as college football fans to watch him and Michael Penix, who might very well win the Heisman Trophy this year, to go head-to-head in a game of that significance was amazing. Let's talk quickly about Penix. We talked about Caleb. I mean, it was like a heavyweight fight there, especially in the first half. Michael Penix is so efficient. The ball just comes off of his hand so effortlessly. He throws with crazy velocity. He had all the answers. And USC was mixing some coverages. They were dropping eight at some point, and he was taking the underneath stuff. He was patient. He wasn't forcing it down the field. He was very calm as he went through his process. And then there were situations when they brought the heat, and Penix quickly found the matchup that he was looking for and threw it exactly where he needed to throw it to take advantage of the aggressiveness from USC's defense. I know in the moment we're going to sit here and a lot of the takeaways will be, well, USC's defense isn't good. Oh, Washington's back. But I hope we can all just take a step back for a moment and know that when we were watching that game for the three and a half, four hours that it was on on Saturday night, those were two of the best quarterbacks we've seen in recent history of college football going toe-to-toe in a heavyweight battle in a big, big setting. It's terrific. Just absolutely terrific. I loved every second of it. Takeaway number seven, Alex Grint's departure is probably long overdue, and it's not all his fault. It's not all his fault, and a lot of people will point to USC's challenges on that side of the ball and blame Alex Grinch exclusively. I've documented on this program. I think it's deeper than that. It might be about how they practice. It might be about the way they manufacture real live game-like situations in camp, maybe in spring. I think there needs to be more of an emphasis on on tackling and defensive fundamentals and all those things. So Alex Grinch can only do so much. But it's at this point, when you start to look at the stat line, 52 points, 572 yards, 316 yards on the ground against a team that averages 100 yards on the ground, and at one point, nearly 200 yards for Dylan Johnson, the running back, for Washington before contact. That can't happen. The last couple weeks, I mean, it just can't happen. And I, I look at at where SC has been and what it's taken for them to win games. The offense at times has had to be absolutely perfect. For USC to win the game against Washington, USC had to be flawless. Flawless. Nahek made two mistakes in the entire game. I mean, two mistakes in the entire game. You had the fumble by Caleb Williams right before the half, which led to the Washington touchdown. That was huge. There was also the critical fourth down sack, uh, fourth quarter sack, excuse me, that knocked the Trojans out of field goal range when they were down three. So there were two mistakes made in the game. Two on a play that featured on a game that featured gosh 80 offensive snaps or so and as a result they lose the game by 10 i reference washington's rushing totals averaged 102 yards rushing 102 yards rushing in a game going into this weekend and to rush rip off 316 it just can't happen 
It just absolutely can't happen. And that allowed Washington to kind of hold the ball a little bit longer in the second half and to kind of take the air out of the football just a little bit. Now, right now, defensive line coach Sean Nua and the inside linebackers coach Brian Odom, they'll serve as co-defensive coordinators in the interim. They also elevated former safety for the Trojans, Taylor Mays, to an on-field role. So we'll see exactly where he's been. But if you look at some of the numbers for Alex Grinch the last few years, dating all the way back to his time at Oklahoma, it's just become a little bit too much. USC has allowed the following point totals. 41, 41, 48, 34, 49, and 52. It just can't happen. And I know we look at that 48 and we're like, well, some of those were defensive touchdowns and special team scores against the Irish. Fair enough. So maybe some of those numbers were inflated, but it's at this point something needs to change. USC is currently 124th nationally in scoring defense, giving up nearly 35 points a game and 109th in yards per play allowed at over six yards per play. It's just not enough. And unfortunately, it was time for a change. Mmm. You smell that? That's the scent of fresh turf and freshly cracked Dr. Pepper, which can only mean one thing. It's college football season. So block off your Saturdays and swipe a sweet Dr. Pepper from the mini fridge because there's a new season of high kicks, long throws, and Fansville commercial breaks to carry you all the way to the West Coast games. That's right. The fans are back, and this year things are heating up. We're talking about hot takes more heartbreak, more layers of face paint. Get ready to drink in all the drama this season with the help of the most delicious college football tradition there is, Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. Takeaway number eight, the ACC has two playoff contenders. Two, not one, two. I know Louisville is not a blue blood brand, so heaven forbid we put them in the playoff conversation, but they belong in the playoff conversation. Partly because of how well the ACC has fared this year against the top leagues in college football. The ACC is four and two against the SEC. They are four and three against the Big Ten. Let's start with Florida State because they're the obvious, right? It's time to recognize that, that Florida State, well, yeah, they struggled a little bit against Pitt. They won 24 7. They were without some of their best weapons in the process. No Johnny Wilson, Keon Coleman, both watching on the sidelines, street close. And Jordan Travis, a lot of people were actually kind of critical of Jordan Travis's play in this game. Now, he took a couple sacks in which I thought maybe held the ball just a little bit too long as opposed to just throwing it away. But he played his tail off. They were down four wide receivers, including their top two guys. And some of the throws that he made downfield to Ja'Kai Douglas were among some of the best throws he's made all season long. He had a season-best 360 passing yards with a crew that was largely banged up at wide receiver. 
He also had his third best yards per attempt on the season. And some of those throws downfield were dimes. I thought Travis played great. Benson showed up in a big way, just pound away, pound away, pound away, and hit a big one. Defensively, and I, I look, I know Pitt's not special offensively, almost everything but, I might add. But Florida State has not allowed a 30-point game to a team this season. That's a nine-game streak. It's the longest active streak in the ACC and the fourth longest in the country. So that defense is playing at a consistently high level. And they have Miami this week. It will be a good test for them because that is a Miami group that even though last week and the week before and the offense hasn't been quite as good, this defense for FSU, man, they are making teams look bad in a big way. And then Louisville. This one might take a little bit more convincing. I think most people have warmed up to the idea that Florida State is an obvious playoff contender. And some people have said, well, Florida State has to run the table to get in. I don't agree with that, man. If you beat Louisville in the ACC championship game, that is a dang good win. You look at what Louisville has left. It is highly likely, highly likely that Louisville's sitting there in the ACC title game at 11-1. And people will point to, well, they lost to Pitt. Get it. I have never concerned myself with who you lose to. Everyone's allowed one do-over, in my opinion. And people disagree with this. In my, and y'all, I'm not like a Louisville homer here. I'm just being honest. Everyone's allowed one do over. Some teams' do overs come against the best teams in college football. Other teams' do overs come against the worst teams in college football. But I saw a 2014 Ohio State lose to six and six Virginia Tech only to go on and destroy everybody the rest of the way en route to a national championship. I've seen it happen. And Louisville had a really bad loss, but they have now held five straight opponents under 300 yards of total offense. And Five straight opponents under 100 yards rushing. The Hokies finished with 68 rushing yards and 72 passing yards, which is 140 yards of total offense. Louisville's defense has allowed just three points in the last two games. They shut out Duke the week before, and they were already coming into last week among the top 10 teams in number of defensive categories. And this was against the Hokies where those numbers actually got better. They had eight tackles for a loss. Storm Duck, who's thrust into the starting lineup because of an injury, more on that in a minute, he led the team with seven tackles and had an interception in the third quarter. Or, well, a bad pass that led to an interception. So this team has depth, which I think is a big, big point when evaluating what you can do down the stretch. They were missing some significant, significant pieces in this game on Saturday. Louisville was without Jarvis Brownlee, who has a foot injury and was walking around in a boot. He's their starting corner. They were without him. They're without Jamari Thrash, who is obviously their go-to wide receiver in the passing game. They were without several others, including Jawar Jordan, who is not at 100% against Virginia Tech. And they still found a way to get it done. Now, if you look at where they're going, they can now fortify those top-end pieces with adequate pieces behind them. And that is a really encouraging sign for what they could do down the stretch. Jawar Jordan was non-factor in this game. Yeah, he had 14 carries, 57 yards in the touchdown, but he wasn't at 100%, came into the game questionable. Well, hey, we'll just put Isaac Garendo in there. Transfer from Wisconsin. Well, he had pretty dang good day in his own right, including a 39-yard touchdown run, which I don't know if I knew he had the juice. He's more of kind of a churned out four or five, six yards in the cloud of dust type of back. He played really well. 
in the absence of Jawar Jordan. Now, they're better with Jordan on the field. That goes without saying. But Garendo showed that he's up to the task in the event in which Jordan isn't at 100% down the stretch. He also had a 60-yard score that was negated by a holding penalty too. So Garendo had a really nice day. And Louisville is extremely real because of how they can run the football and how they can play on defense. They're going to be a problem for everyone they face down the stretch, including Florida State, assuming Florida State gets there. The winner of the ACC, if they are 12-1 and or better, should be in the college football playoff. Now, I don't care if it's Louisville. I don't care if it's Florida State. That league's too good to be in a situation where they might be left out in favor of somebody else. I love the league. They're playing great. It's really fun to watch. Speaking of the ACC, Clemson isn't done just yet. That's takeaway number nine. You get a big win against a good opponent, Notre Dame. And not that dissimilar to what we just talked about with Florida State and with Louisville. Clemson did so without 10 players that have, that would have started the game had they been available. They're without two offensive linemen. They're without Will Shipley, their running back. They're without their best wide receiver, Antonio Williams. They're without multiple guys on the defensive side of the football, including Maskell, two safeties. I mean, th- it was like a mash unit, man. Ten different guys that would have started the game on Saturday were out because of injury. And here's the scary thing. It could have been worse. Clemson had four chances to add an insurance touchdown in the fourth quarter, but they had a high snap, a fumble, a punt, and another fumble that gave Notre Dame a chance to drive down the field and score and potentially tie the game and send it to overtime. Now, the Clemson defense has been great all year long. And that was one of the best performances I've seen with my own two eyes this year from a linebacker. Jeremiah Trotter was ridiculous in the game. This stat line will jump off by itself. 11 tackles, two and a half tackles for loss, two sacks, and a pick six. He was untouchable, man. He was all over the field and basically said, I'm taking this game over. It doesn't matter what you do offensively. I'm going to make it work. Kylan Griffin, another freshman, they added an interception there at the end. And Clemson held Notre Dame to just 329 yards of total offense. That's 100 yards fewer than Notre Dame's average entering the season. And you look one step further, look at how many yards Notre Dame gained after halftime. Because Audrick Estime was hot early and he did nothing in the final 30 minutes. So you got to give immense credit for that. I also want to give some credit to Phil Moffa. Phil Moffa finished with a career-high 186 rushing yards and two touchdowns. Now, Will Shipley was out because of the concussion, but before Saturday, Moffa had only registered in his career-high game 18 carries and 106 yards. He doubled up his carries, and he went for 80 yards more than he'd ever gone before in a bell cow situation where he displayed toughness, uh, stamina, vision, savvy, at the line of scrimmage, always seemed to find the hole with an offensive line that had struggled pretty much all season long, down two starters in the game and moving pieces around before the game, really down three starters. They were without their left tackle, Sadler, who was out. They had to move their right guard, Tristan Lee, back to left tackle where he started the first few games. Their left guard, Marcus Tate, was out. Their right guard had been out forever. That's Walker Parks. They've been out without him since week two or whatever it was. So this team really showed some toughness on Saturday. And one of the things to acknowledge with Clemson, they have a really good contingent of young players. A really good contingent of young players. Guys that'll be back, Tyler Brown, Antonio Williams, 
Cade Klubnick. These guys are all sophomores or freshmen. TJ Parker on defense, Khalil Barnes on defense, uh, Kylan Griffin on defense, Avian Terrell on defense. We're talking about freshmen and sophomores that are Peter Woods, guys that are making impact plays as 18 and 19 year old kids. Cade Klubnick just turned 20 a couple weeks ago. And you know how the ages of the quarterbacks that Clemson's faced this year? Casey Thompson at FAU's 25, Sam Hartman's 24. I mean, several. This is every single one they've played is 21 or older. And Cade Klubnick just turned 20. This is a young football team that isn't done just yet, man. Now, are they going to win the national championship at 24? I don't know. But I think we should all hesitate before we declare the program dead moving forward after evaluating the effort and toughness that Clemson showed on Saturday afternoon. Takeaway number 10. Can anybody help me out with the group of five? Because I got nothing (laughs) right now. Here we are. We're starting to evaluate these teams that might punch their ticket to the New Year's Six. And hey, Air Force is in a great spot. Man, they're looking great. They've played great in the first two months of the season. Well, boom, we'll go to mile high. We'll play Army. We get beat and allow 23 first half, first quarter points and route to a 23-0 loss. 23-3 loss, excuse me. So Air Force, you can remove them from the conversation. Tulane, okay, they beat East Carolina, but it was really ugly in the process. That was the best win for Tulane in a while as far as points scored. The last time they scored 13 or less to win was back in 2014 against UConn when they won 12-3. So it was not pretty from Tulane whatsoever. They were on the ropes and it was not a good performance from them whatsoever. James Madison, they're not bowl eligible for whatever freaking reason. It makes me absolutely furious that the NCAA is going to dig in on this. James Madison is undefeated. They beat Georgia State, who is a good football team, 42-14 to this past weekend. And they have found themselves being able to run the football. Jordan McLeod's coming on, a couple, t- couple passing touchdowns, a couple on the ground. Really liking what I'm seeing from James Madison. Do the right thing, NCAA, and say, yes, you guys are eligible for the postseason. It's ridiculous right now that Kurt Signetti and his team isn't. Liberty remains undefeated. They're 9-0 for the first time in program history. Thanks to four touchdown passes from Caden Salter, they destroyed Louisiana Tech 56-30 on Saturday. Is Liberty the best team in the G5? Memphis, they outlasted USF 59-50 in a wild high-scoring affair. SMU narrowly avoided the upset at Rice 36-31. Fresno survived a late charge from Boise to win 37-30. They do have a good win on the road at Purdue. They also lost on the road to Wyoming in week six, so they have a loss on their resume. And Toledo, their only loss this year is a two-point loss at Illinois. They've since won eight straight. So if you can help me, Please help me. I don't know who the best G5 team is. I don't. I don't know who should represent the G5 in the New Year's Six this year because this is the cloudiest that the G5 race has been in quite a while with a bunch of really good teams, but a bunch of teams that have been a little up and down throughout the course of the season. want to close by giving a shout out to some teams that will be playing in the postseason, several of which maybe not expected coming into the year. And based how things started, probably not expected even all the way as late as, I don't know, the end of September. Let's give a shout out to Arizona. They're going bowling. This is in alphabetical order, I might add. Why? I don't know. I just felt like it was easiest. (laughs) 
Arizona's going to the postseason. Boston College. Jeff Halfley in a very important year in which he entered the hot seat. They're now going to the postseason. Coastal Carolina is heading to a bowl game. Duke is heading back to a bowl game. Kentucky gets their sixth win of the season. NC State, after a rough start, a little quarterback switch, they've found something. Their defense is playing incredible. NC State's going to the postseason. Texas State, how about what G.J. Kinney's done so far this year? What a great, great performance from them to get their sixth win of the season. UTSA, West Virginia. Neil Brown and co. Many people thinking, yeah, West Virginia, I don't know, probably not going to happen for Neil Brown. Got to get to six, got to get to seven. Well, they're at six already with plenty more to play. They've really turned things around. Picked to finish last in the Big 12 in the preseason. Neil Brown had an issue with that. That team's played with a chip on their shoulder all year. They get another nice convincing win this past weekend. And then Wyoming also getting their sixth win of the season too to secure a trip to the postseason. So shout out to all those teams. It's awesome. Congratulations. Do not take bowl games for granted, ladies and gentlemen. If nothing else, the vacation is one thing. The extra game is another. But the 15 practices for your young players to develop, that's the most important thing. So look forward to seeing those teams in bowl games here starting in November. Thanks so much for being with us. We continue to appreciate all of you for reaching out the way you have. Follow the podcast on social media at AlwaysCFB. You can also follow me at Greg McElroy. A lot of the stuff on Always CFB and on my site will go hand in hand. So we appreciate you guys for following there. Continue to encourage all of you to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. If you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up button. We so appreciate all the support you've shown the show up to this point. We'll just keep plugging along, man. It's week 11. These are some wild weeks coming up. I think we'll have some chaos, that's for sure. So for all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey, guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.